0: This is Writers' Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm your host David Wilk. Today I'm talking to William J Peters. He's the author of a new book called At Heaven's Door: What Shared Journeys to the Afterlife Teach About Dying Well and Living Better. How are you?
1: I'm good, David. Thanks for having me.
0: It's really good to talk to you. This, you know, I'm I'm interested in this subject not from any personal connection. I've never had an experience that you describe being either near someone or with someone who was dying and experiencing their passing, which is what your book is about. But I felt like when I was reading it, it reminded me a lot of books about mystical experiences. I've read a lot of books about mystical experiences and also the same sort of difficulty in describing an event that is other than normal, we'll call it, normal human reality. People don't have words to describe what they're experiencing. This is true of mystical experiences. I think it's true of any out-of-body experience, any experience that we can't understand or make sense of in our the construct of our psyches. And so it's very interesting to see that there is so much continuity among humans when faced with this other indescribable experience, you know, that they have to come up with some description of it. I guess let me ask this other question. I know I, I really mean for you to do all the talking and not for me to talk so much, but do you feel that, or have you talked to people who have had similar experiences in other contexts? beyond the the death experience, the passage from this life to whatever is the other reality that you're describing? Have you talked to people about that similarity?
1: Yeah. So the shared death experience, and I'll just be really clear on the definition that I use and that we use in the field, is that somebody's dying and a caregiver or loved one, sometimes even a bystander, will report that they shared in this transition from this human life into the afterlife. They use the term afterlife. And the phenomena, to answer your question directly, is very similar to the near-death experience. So that makes sense if you think about it. The near-death experience is experienced by somebody who's having a brush with death. They're coming very close to leaving their human existence. In some cases, they've been physically dead on an operating table with, you know, their heart rate stopped. And, of course, they come back and they often tell of these tales of what they saw, which is a beautiful light or heavenly realms or deceased relatives, had a life review, all of this and very pleasant. The most sublime feelings they've ever known. Well, the shared death experience is is. Is similar if not identical in terms of capacity of phenomena that can be um, had if you will. The difference in a a shared death experience is that the most dominant feature that an experiencer will express is that they saw the dying during the transition. So of course that's not possible in the near-death experience because the near-death experiencer is the person possibly dying. But in this experience, it's the caregiver loved one who's glimpsing or witnessing or observing or strongly sensing the transition of their dying loved one. And what they tell us is that the most dominant motif is journey. There's a journey that they're privy to, and it's beautiful, and it's guided, and it's safe. And so they often come back from this with a a few very profound after effects, the first of which is they state that they know their loved one is alive and well in a benevolent afterlife. They know that they'll see their loved one again at some point. Their fear and anxiety of death, if they had some to begin with, is greatly alleviated, if not eliminated. And their grief is much different than typical grief processes that, you know, we, I'm a psychotherapist specializing in grief and bereavement, and when somebody comes to me after a shared death experience, they still feel loss. You lose a loved one, you're going to feel loss. But the loss is held in a much more meaningful context. It's imbued with a sense of this is the way life is, and we all go to a greater, deeper reality after this. So their grief, while painful, is not as enduring and uh, complex as it would be had they not had the SDE.
0: Right, which makes sense. And I really meant to give a better introduction to you than to just launch into the question. But I'm just struck by the, you know, one of the things you talked about in the book was the commonality of experience across so many different individuals who don't know each other it's not like they read a book about it and then had the experience so um and i remember reading something and i can't remember where it was might have been in an anthropology textbook about uh, people taking ayahuasca and seeing the same animal image that everyone else saw going back thousands of years in history that the drug itself put them in a state of connection to a particular spirit realm. Um, now, what, this sort of raises another question because culturally, while there is some commonality in how we think about the spiritual realm, human beings—that is, um, you know, across cultures, across um, time—there are differences too. You know, some of it is culturally uh, interpretive, and we. Are given a, you know, the culture creates a context for what we experience, and also the experience creates context in the culture. Um, And so, you know, one of the, you talk to mostly people who come from a Western tradition, um, you know, Judeo Christian. And I'm curious to know if you've studied or talked to people who have had what, and I'll use your language, the shared death experience from other cultures who, would view it perhaps differently. I mean, you did talk about how difficult it is for us to experience death. It's something that we, as a culture, don't want to deal with. You know, we all, I mean, the irony is we all die. No one wants to deal with it. Um, We're all scared to death of it. So, you know, in a lot of ways, what you're doing is helpful to getting us past that social construct that makes it so difficult for us. But I, I, I am curious whether that experience is shared across different cultural traditions or religious traditions, even.
1: Great question. And, you know, we haven't done any study of these types of experiences uh, formally in any pre-industrial cultures our research, we have people in New Zealand, Australia, all over Europe, North America being the most common a place where our experiences come from. My sense is, and then, you know, I lived in, worked in Central and South America and Guatemala and Peru, which have, and I worked with, um, you know, a lot of indigenous people. And my sense is these experiences are more a part of their lives in a way that, that um, I mean, their practices, they have, you know, shamanic journeys are kind of regular spiritual practices for uh, indigenous people who are practicing, of course. Um, so I think they're more available to the shared death experience and they're more available in a way that it's more integrated into their life. And maybe they're having these experiences not just at time of death maybe right. they're having them in other ritualized practices if you will journeys
0: when i was thinking of as you were talking about that and i'm sorry to interrupt you but you know you're probably familiar with the sun dance ceremony plains tribal people doing a five-day dance to achieve a connection with spirit realms and also you know fasting going off on uh, quests to connect with spiritual beings. And in a lot of ways, I think the commonality of human experience is that this idea that this reality is the only reality is belied by these experiences. You know, and Western culture being materialistic and structuralistic and commoditizing experience does distance us more from spiritual realms than is true in other uh societies not just tribal or pre-industrial or indigenous cultures but maybe in cultures that are more integrated uh with the spiritual realm to begin with well i couldn't
1: agree more the western mindset is very materially based it is you know what we call the enlightenment in the west was really a closing down of relationships, our relationship collectively with, you know, the spirit realm or the invisible realms that could not be touched, tasted, measured, weighed, all of that. I mean, that was the whole movement. And, you know, at that point, there was a time when theology and philosophy in, in the history of the West was the... Kind of the same study, you know. Um, theologians and philosophers were largely one, and then with Enlightenment, there was a big split off, and you know, religion really was looked at askance, and spirituality in general, like it just became something that was looked down upon increasingly so, and of course, the bearers of this tradition are the scientific materialists of the modern day, to which they don't really have much use for uh, this notion of non-physical realms. But that being said, this is changing. I think our more uh, you know, quantum physics and fifth dimensional physics, mm-hmm. the cutting edge of the study of the universe and the nature of reality is now telling us You know, that there are forces that are uh, around that we can't see, that we can't touch, that we can't measure, and that they're ultimately perhaps both very relational with us, but also the drivers of our reality. So I I just, you know, that's kind of a long-winded way of agreeing with you, but saying, you know, we don't have a culture, a modern academy that is open to these experiences.
0: Right. Do I mean? Do you feel that? I would guess. I mean, this is a leading question. um, That in your work, you're faced often with uh, skepticism. um, That people will try to explain what you're recording with a different viewpoint. In other words, not to diminish the experience. You know, you can admit that someone has that experience, but the skeptic might say um, that they're uh, projecting what they're Experiencing, you know, that it's a deep seated psychological response that they are. <laughs> it's re- totally weird. I just watched the New Matrix movie and, the, the, you know, it kind of grapples with some of those ideas in a kind of stupid way, but does recognize that we can't tell the difference between what we project as reality and what is reality, you know, in the sense that you experience something it could be a complete projection of your mind onto what you're experiencing. So that the doubting person, the skeptical person, will maybe say, you know, what you've recorded is, you know, you can't doubt that someone feels the way they felt or saw what they saw, but did they really enter a spiritual realm or did they simply, you know, is it somewhat Jungian, you know, that they're projecting an iconic human chthonic sense onto their reality. And I have trouble with that if someone dismisses what you're experiencing, but then they you know, they the sort of healthy skepticism is a fair reaction, and I'm just curious what do you say when someone approaches you from that perspective?
1: It's a great point you're making and one that I encounter increasingly with um both the literature, the the publication of the first research-based article in the American Journal of Hospice and Palliative Medicine, one of the leading medical journals that accepted the research and accepted it actually with some gratitude that me and my team had spent the time to interview 134 folks really break down the phenomena, show the compelling patterns. Um, it's obvious from the way we present this that none of these experiencers had ever heard of the shared death experience. There was no, you know, trope to step into, to, to you know, mimic uh, an experience. So, and we had people in Australia. And, you know, I can think of a great example here, David. We had a uh, two mothers, one in Australia and one in West Virginia, or one in Sydney and one in, in uh, West Virginia. And they both lost children at birth and they both had family members appear to them to take their baby and to express that they were taking their baby and that everything's going to be okay. And each of these experiencers was stunned by the experience, a bit embarrassed and shy about sharing it with anybody for fear that they would be ridiculed. Their experience would be considered, would be portrayed as hallucinogenic, wishful thinking, um, some sort of comfort mechanism to shield them from the loss, psychologically derived as a self-preservation, you know, unconscious exercise. And so, the, the reality is now, and you said this, these experiences cannot be denied, they happen. And they happen with a greater frequency than we know because so many people will have an experience, but say that they've never shared it with anybody or not more than you know, a, a, a close loved one in confidence, but they know what they had. They know it's more real than real, more real than this waking life they're in. So given the fact the experiences happen, the next thing is what you also uh, invited me to comment on is well, what do people make of it? Like, what do the medical practitioners make of it? What do the scientists make of it? Fortunately, most of my audiences are people in end of life, hostage people. I train a lot of people in these methods who are conscious and educated and want to have a good death with their loved ones and themselves when they go. So we have a series of programs to take to teach people our methods to yield the best death possible. So I'm sharing this because I have a very supportive, affirming audience that knows the value of the work that I've generated. Where I do run into trouble, and it's not huge, but it's there, is these skeptics that aren't really skeptics. A good skeptic will look at the phenomena and say, huh, this is the way that I and the world or my scientific community looks at the human experience, and this does not fit in the experience. Let's get curious about it because the research suggests that these are happening. That would be a sincere skeptic. Let's do more research. Let's meet these people. Let's do psychological evals on them. Let's look at life history and see if there's trauma. All these things would be reasonable approaches to this phenomena uh, and their resistance to accept it. Those people are wonderful. They contact me and my team. We take them through the research. We have them, if they want, uh, read my notes or even meet the people who have these experiences, so they know the mental status of them. Those people are fine. The real issue comes up with the dogmatic cynics. They're not. They're not skeptics at all. They're cynics. They've made up their mind. They're committed to a belief. That's based in an unfounded theory about consciousness, which sounds something like this. Brain is the ultimate arbiter of being alive. If your brain is dead, nothing more exists of you. So if the brain is the arbiter of consciousness, if the brain is responsible for the generation of consciousness, once the brain is dead, there should be no consciousness. So if these experiences are happening, they're making them up. Or they have to be they have to have a, a hallucinatory status to them or a delusional status, or some sort of traumatic event is causing these psychotic episodes. You got all these pejorative terms in mental health, but the reality is none of it adds up. These are healthy people with sound minds at the time of death of a loved one, unbeknownst to them, they have this experience. And they're reticent to express it initially. But when they realize in their interviews with me and my team that we understand the phenomena, our questions are geared at understanding more deeply their experience, they let down their guard and they basically express an experience, the shared death experience that fits very well in our literature and even in some existing, pre existing literature, although we have done the most uh, in depth study to date of the shared death experience,
0: you know, you might actually even think that if this was a projection or a hallucinatory experience or a psychotic, that it would be more common. and that when it happened, people would be not happy but disturbed because they're facing something that they don't know how to deal with. So there you know, this sort of dismissive view, as you said, doesn't really add up. although you know you can understand. i I do think that if you're, A complete materialist, and you refuse to accept that there could be anything other than what you've experienced or been taught yourself, it's difficult when you're faced with events that don't fit into your preconceived notion of reality. And the irony, of course, of those people is that they're going to accuse you of having a preconceived notion of reality because you're projecting a Judeo Christian view of end of life. And there's just no way, I think. The fairer view is one that you sort of alluded to, that there's really, if you want to doubt or and be skeptical, you still have to admit that there are events and experiences you can't explain, and they could be either um, projected or from or projected onto, and I don't think you really have enough evidence to prove it one way or the other if your goal is to disprove it. Um, <laughs> so um yeah it it, it is sort of there is the that kind of irony i also would assume you would maybe get some pushback from traditional religious people who may feel as they did about you know mystical experiences were rejected by um organized religion um even though they took place in the context of that religion um you know especially in, in christianity and the early Renaissance, um, you know, was, and, and later, not very kind, kindly toward um, uh, the spirit, you know, the kind of um, mystical point of view because, or the mystical experience because it tends to undermine received wisdom, whatever that received, and it undermines power because, you know, the, the voices and the spirits that are the spiritual realm is pretty powerfully, opposed to the materialist realm. You know, it's sort of like, okay, if you want to be Christian about it, when they talk about the preaching of Jesus Christ, it is pretty clear that he was opposed to all materialist hegemony. (laughs) And he didn't just, you know, where did he come from? You know, where did that, if that didn't come from a spiritual place, Okay, fine. You know, he was just a, a, a radical Marxist before his time. But um, you know when you read the when you read in um, closely, it, it's pretty clear that that was what what was being said was pretty radical. Um, and it still is. And so you know, you just I, I sort of feel like the the conflict between sp- the spiritual realm and the materialist realm, is pretty difficult to resolve.
1: I could not agree more. It is quite a chasm. Um, but I, I think, you know, for those who have these experiences, uh, as long as we can support them, and I say we, the mental health field particularly, but also more directly, the hospice communities that serve, these people, I think there will be a shift. There's already a shift underway to make more space for them. Yeah, the goal here is to get people who have these experiences, the resources to feel supported and affirmed and to integrate the teachings and learnings from these experiences, because it really does transform your view of the world. To do that and to help others know that these experiences exist, they're possible, and you can, you can take steps to generate them, to facilitate them. And that, that's the goal.
0: Um, that was one of the questions I wanted to ask you. Have you found that, is there any kind of training that you can do with hospice workers, with caregivers, with family members to help them in any way enhance the possibility that someone could have a shared death experience?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting, David. When I first started this organization back in 2013, I actually started running groups in 2011, and then I realized there was so much interest in exploring what happens around death and dying and communication across the veil and all this you know, type of spiritual experiences related to death and dying. I started the organization in 2013, uh, Shared Crossing Project, and uh, soon after our research initiative my goal was initially to study the efficacy of methods that I had designed to enable the shared death experience. Long story short, we ran through about 38 couples and with one presumably dying before the other, because I selected based on mortality factors, age, illness, poor health, what have you. Terminal illnesses were allowed. We certainly had a about 12 to 15 people with terminal cancer. So I do teach people. and I, At that time, I had methods. I still do. And we took people through and we studied these methods. And our hope was that, you know, not to be um, fatalistic about this, but that people would die sooner than later so we could test our methods. But as it turned out, the people did a lot better because our training really helped their mental health and way they feel about themselves mm-hmm. and spiritual well-being. They actually live longer uh, than, than they were than their diagnoses. So we didn't get much data on that. But I've continued to do those programs. It's now called the Pathway Program. And I'll, and I'll walk your listeners through it briefly. The first thing we do is we talk about these experiences. We actually lay out the research that affirms, validates, and essentially presents the reality that these experiences happen. And they just don't happen Every now and then they're happening all the time, just in our popular culture, there are people having shared death experiences that that people don't even recognize. You know, if you just think about later uh, a few, you know, some time ago, Betty White, when she died, uh, she saw her deceased husband, Alan, and she called out his name. And the caregiver said that she was talking to Alan and calling out for Alan, talking to Alan. It's like, wow, okay. So this is a type of shared death experience. So basically these are happening all around us, but we don't have the language to properly grasp it. That being said, the first step in our three-part training is you teach about the existence of these uh, experiences. You normalize them. Then you go into the practices that I put together from the East and the West, and that is these practices of reviewing your life, finding your regrets, working with your regrets, having compassion, doing forgiveness wherever you can do it. And then gradually, gratitude tends to arise in most people. And that doesn't mean you solve all your regrets in the moment, it means you get a big enough handle on them where you can go into a healthy regret practice about the work you have not left to do in your life. With that, set, we get people to accept that they're dying, and we have some exercises for people to really step into this sense that I love you, thank you for sharing my life with you, goodbye. And you really let those verses seep into you. And the final step is teaching the protocols. And the protocols take a long time to go over, but if you just think of it this way, uh, we teach people um, how, when they're transitioning, to be able to turn back to the planet Earth and tell their loved ones, um, I'm alive and well, and I want to show you where I am. So this this turning back and pulling or drawing their loved ones energetically with them is a is essential a part of our protocols. So we have a number of protocols, but that's one of them, and it's very helpful. And you know, these are done in deep meditations so that these experiences or these practices are really, really seated into the being of the experiencers.
0: That would be something I would be very interested in. I'll have to save that for another um, conversation with you. But I think, to me, I think that the whole notion of training ourselves to die, to accept death, or to have a good death, or being trained to do that, uh, is something that's very powerful. I think that's something that I cannot imagine any person, skeptic or otherwise, not wanting to be able to pass on in a good way rather than in a painful way. So I appreciate your saying that. I think it's really important.
1: Well, yeah. And David, to be clear, you know, we set these groups up to support people as they're approaching death. And then what we found was the word got out and people wanted to take these groups. Right away, right now, because people were saying, well, hey, I don't know when I'm going to die or I hear such great things. People were saying the feedback after the group was, I don't care if I had a shared death experience. This practice was so wonderful and waking me up and working things out with my, you know, unfinished business with loved ones and myself that I advocate for this group at any time. And this is the feedback we got. So we opened up the groups to anybody who wanted to take them and The feedback has been really good. I mean, and and people enjoy, actually enjoy, uh, discussing such an intimate topic, as you called it, and such a, uh, it's a a challenging topic because we don't have any way to relate to death. It's the end of everything we know, apparently.
0: Well, no, it is the end of every. It's the end of everything we know, regardless. Um, That's correct. Right, no matter what. And that, you know, the fear of the unknown is profound. And I I cannot imagine that any of us, even with training, and we don't have a lifetime of preparation as some cultures, and, and I think this has to do with the shortness of life in the past. You know, maybe the longer that you live, the harder it is to accept and embrace moving on to another world because we've had longer time to get used to this one. You know, it, it, you know, in it, at some point in human history, people lived to be 40 if they were lucky. So, you know, death was really, really apparent. It was a much more uh, active experience for everyone. And maybe that's part of why it's so hard for us to embrace death now, because, you know, living is pretty good, and it's really hard to want to stop. <laughs> so...
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're bringing up a really excellent point, is that there are a series of factors who, uh, that have contributed to a lack of relationship with death. One is that, as you said, life expectancy is you know nearly twice what it was only 150 years ago. The other piece is, and this is related, is that our medical care mm-hmm. yep. is so good at keeping people alive. Right. That now people have this response that, well, you know, the doctors, the medical folks will figure it out by the time I get to death, and I'll won't be as relevant. This has all led to the pushing out of death into some other reality, which basically means it doesn't need to be addressed now. Uh, so when we get to death, there's little or no preparation for it because there's no need to in our modern culture. And this is the, I want to say, the complicitness of both the medical sciences for telling us that we're going to find cures for everything, for doing such a good job of keeping us alive when, in when in the you know any other time in human history, these accidents or health problems would have caused an imminent death, and uh, and the society wants to buy into that. Our public wants to buy into the fact that not to the fact, to the belief that death is far away, it's not going to impact me for a long time, that medical sciences will get better and better, so why should I worry about it? And they get into a healthcare situation, and the first thing they do is do the intervention, keep me alive, doc, just do whatever you can, keep me alive. Part of that is from watching too much television, I guess.
0: Well, it's it's also the imperative of the doctors, and you can't really blame them for the negative effect of that. But their job is to keep, you know, to do no harm, to keep people alive, to cure. So that's what they do, and they do it really well. And unfortunately, it has that corollary effect, which you're describing, which is, well, we we come to believe that death must not be good if we're trying to avoid it so much. You know, how could you embrace it every? minute of your life you've been raised to think that death is something that you don't want and so it's almost impossible for us not to feel the way we do
1: you're right it's that confluence of culture our entire culture which includes our healthcare care system you know they yeah. yeah then no one wants to look at it man there's huge cost for that too uh, i think i think increasingly people are seeing the quality of life when people get on life support or just live longer than their natural body would have determined for them. So these are going to be some big questions in our, in our culture, but these shared death experiences really provide some insight into what happens at the moment of death. And also, you know, someone asked me the other day, like, what is the range of impact of a shared death experience if if it does become um, accepted in our society? And I said, well, for one, we're going to have a lot better deaths, better deaths defined as people really doing what they need to do before they die. So an openness to death that had been previously non-existent because with the shared death experience, death becomes like Um, a very desirable experience, not saying everyone wants to die right away, but it certainly is not aversive. In other words, it's not something that you would shy away from. I'm not saying you wouldn't live your life fully, but I am saying is once you started declining and you were looking at a, if you have a cancer diagnosis and your prognosis is, you know, three to six months with not much, uh, if you don't do anything, um, but you know, a year and a half, two years, maybe three years, if you basically radiate your body and ingest, you know, chemo, this chemicals, these are not desirable deaths for most people. And so the shared death experience says, wait a minute, why don't I just go out on my own natural terms? Why don't I circle everybody up that I love about? Why don't I use the practices and protocols of good death and good dying, conscious dying? And why don't I do this on kind of my own terms? Not that you're going to determine when you die, but you're not going to go to extraordinary means to get you know a year and a half more of compromised painful living
0: and you've integrated your life instead totally. of just fighting till the end, and then essentially you're all you know we're all going to disappear no matter what. so um, yeah, I think what you're saying resonates. For a lot of us. And um, I, I wasn't expecting to feel that way. You know, reading this book, I, it was more, yeah. uh, I didn't realize it was going to take me there. And I really appreciate it.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, to finish this off in terms of the question you asked, um, because I stopped, was that this could ultimately be really good for our economy because the real drain on our healthcare system and on our government expenditures is healthcare in the last six months of life. We spend an astronomical amount of healthcare dollars in the last six months of people's life, two thirds of which yields nothing other than a little bit more time with no quality of life and a lot of pain for the caregivers and loved ones. If we get this shared death experience into the collective conscious and people realize at the end of life, if they haven't already, I need to start preparing and then i'm going to and i'm going to bring my loved ones together i'm going to do this consciously i'm going to do this connected with my loved ones i'm going to do this in a loving way then they will not engage in all this extraneous optional medical interventions that don't yield and so this will save all sorts of you know government dollars healthcare dollars free up our hist- our medical system to do what it should do which is treat the sick and the ones who have illnesses and not try and extend the life of someone who's ultimately dying anyway, at least in short term. So this has really good a long term prognosis for our culture if it embraces the SDE. They'll also say, I don't want I, we want to prepare for the SDE. We don't want to miss it. So we're going to set it up so the whole family members can be trained up in it, learn about it, and hopefully be nearby at bedside when a loved one's dying so they can heighten the possibility of having it. I
0: think that's a worthy outcome. Well, I want to thank you, William, for taking some time. This was really interesting for me, and uh, I hope for my audience as well. I've been talking to William Peters, William J. Peters, about At Heaven's Door, what shared journeys to the afterlife teach about dying well and living better. And I think dying well and living better is the important issue there. Um, So thank you so much for doing this.
1: Yeah, thank you, David. I appreciate it. I just want to remind uh, your listeners that in the book, you won't get much philosophy or theory from me about, um, you know, the relationship between the SDE and the medical establishment per se. What you will get is uh, 28 riveting stories told from ordinary people and me breaking down the categories, the patterns, creating the first typology so that We have a user-friendly guide to um, help us understand this most profound and mystical experience.
0: It's really good. Thank you again. This has been Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm your host, David Wilk. Thank you again.